Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. So John chapter 13, verses 21 to 32. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And in dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had part of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give, or to give something to the poor. As soon as, Ju- as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly God, we come before you, uh, people who in many ways need this bread of life, and yet so many times are distracted by other things. Lord, today as we look at this word, as we uh, come closer and draw before you, I pray, Lord Father, that you would just uh, bless us. I pray, Lord Father, that you would speak through me, that you would also be in the hearing of these words as well. Lord, we ask that you would be with these words. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we uh, find ourselves at table with Jesus and his disciples. I'm just going to move this so I hit something here. I'm just going to move back a little bit. I think we're getting a little feedback or something here. Um, yeah, so we find ourselves at table with Jesus and his disciples. Now, this is the uh, Passover meal. This is the Last Supper. Uh, you've probably seen dramatic representations of it. Uh, Jesus is having a meal with his disciples right before he goes to the cross and dies. And Jesus tells them this little bit of news. He says that one of them will betray him. And of course, they begin to wonder who it is that they're talking about, right? If we look um, at the other gospel accounts of this, we see that they are all uh, focused on trying to figure it out who it is that was going to betray them. In Matthew's gospel, it says, they were very sad and began to say to him, one after one another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. In Luke's account of this, it says, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. In Mark's gospel, where we should be today, it says, they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. And here, uh, in, in Matthew's gospel, it says, wait, where did I start? Uh, and then in John's gospel, it says that they were at a loss to know who it might be that Jesus was talking about, right? We see that Peter motions to the beloved disciple, commonly associated with John, and asks, who is he talking about? 
What's clear from all these gospel accounts is that the disciples are upset. They're trying to figure out who it is that's going to betray Jesus, right? They're trying to figure out who it is, the sinner in their midst, the betrayer, the bad guy. And then when they ask Jesus, he seemingly makes it clear, right? He takes a piece of bread, he dips it, and he gives it to Judas Iscariot, and he tells Judas to go do his thing. And in the past, when I've read this passage, I've always wondered, and maybe you've wondered this too, you've wondered how it is that they did not know that Judas was going to do this thing, right? I mean, it seems pretty obvious. This is not one of those scenes in a movie where we're watching the movie, and we know the, who the bad guy is, and, but the people in the movie don't know, you know? This is a situation where Jesus says, they say, hey, Jesus, you know, you said someone's going to betray you. Who is it? And Jesus, Jesus is like, watch this, right? It's the one to whom I give this bread. And then he takes the bread, and he gives it to Judas, and they're all just like, who is this? I've always wondered, like, what's going on here? How did they not know? And my focus is always on Judas here, right? What's going on with Judas and his betrayal and Judas' sin? But when I read, when we read this account of Jesus breaking bread, what we do, what I do at least, and I think many of us do, just as the disciples did, is we become focused on who it is that will betray Jesus. We become focused on this sin, on this brokenness, who the sinner is. And I think we make this the center of this account. But this is not the center of what's going on here. This is not the center of the story, and this is not the center of the gospel message. The center of the gospel message is not our sin, it's not Judas's sin, it's not anyone else's sin, but it is the grace of Christ who loved us so much that he sat at table with Judas, with these disciples. Because remember, Jesus not only gives bread to Judas, but he gave bread to Peter. He not only gave bread to Peter, but also to John, to Andrew, to all the other disciples. And in all the accounts, all the gospel accounts of this supper and of this betrayal, every time Jesus breaks bread, he dips in the wine, and he gives it to all the disciples. This is, what, this is why we celebrate communion. In all the gospel accounts of the Last Supper, we know that before even this happens, he washes the feet of these disciples, right? Reminding us of being washed of our sins, right, of baptism. The center of the gospel, the center of the story is not sin, it's not Judas' betrayal, but it is that our Lord Jesus washed the feet of sinners, he broke bread with his betrayer, shared a meal with his betrayer, gave his body and his life for them, for all of us as well. And yet, I think, in our, what, we, what we so often do is we become so easily distracted and we focus in on the sin and the brokenness. And I think this is natural to us. At least it's natural to me. Um, it's, it's definitely a part of the way I grew up in this church culture that we know. I myself grew up in ministries that were very much focused on sin and brokenness, right? Especially, I think, in youth ministry and in my college experience, the emphasis was not so much on being good and holy, but just on not being bad. You know, we were, there was a lot of emphasis on being told not to sin, right? Don't have sex before marriage, don't party, don't drink, don't do drugs, don't curse. Uh, there's some movies you probably shouldn't watch, and, you know, definitely don't listen to that secular music now, you know, none of that. And honestly, um, I spent four years doing youth ministry, so I get it, right? I really get it. Um, Youth ministry is just like crisis management. You're just like desperately trying to keep like high schoolers and middle schoolers from doing stupid things while you're responsible for them. That's, that's pretty much all youth ministry is, I think. I've found at least, you know. I'm sure there are better youth pastors out there. I'm sure Russell was great. 
But for me, it was just like, please, please, God, don't do any of that while you're here. And so I get it. I understand why the church kind of has gotten to where it is, right? Um, I hope, I mean, right before um, service today, we, we, we struggled up and we prayed and we had this little icebreaker. And I won't share who it is, but uh, the, the icebreaker that we had today was sharing about our deepest fears. And someone shared, um, there were, I mean, someone shared the fear of roaches, which is like legit, that's real, um, especially in New York. But there's also this fear someone shared, which I thought was very deep, um, of getting to heaven before God and him saying, you know, saying to God, like, you know, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and yet God saying back to us, I don't know you, right? And now, I mean, yes, that's real. That's, that's, uh, that is from the Bible. But at the same time, where does that fear come from, right? Where is this fear that as Christians, right, I mean, if you're, if you're worried about that, you're probably a Christian, getting before God and worried that God will judge you and will say, you know, I, I didn't know you. Where does that come from? I don't think, I don't, I don't see Jesus emphasizing that. I see Jesus giving himself for us, breaking bread for us. And yet, some of us, even if you maybe don't call yourself a Christian, you're aware of this kind of church culture that has a deep focus on morality, on certain, certain values and behaviors and creating what can be at times these arbitrary limits of what is and isn't acceptable, what is and isn't okay in this building, in our community. This is why I think that when you ask people who are, are non-believers, people who maybe have fallen away from the church, who are not coming to church right now, who, who even call themselves Christian, but they're like looking for church, why judgment and hypocrisy are often cited as one of the main reasons why people don't go to church. Churches are a place that are supposed to be filled with grace. And yet, oftentimes, even for Christians, it is a minefield of judgment, right? Being judged by people who, frankly, aren't Jesus. Jesus' words to the religious are as true today as they were back in his day. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time, all the time, when all the time there is a blank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and you will, be, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let me be clear here. I'm not saying that sin and brokenness don't matter, right? That is not what I'm saying. But we can easily become so focused on sin and brokenness all around us, and we so easily miss the center of the gospel story, which is Jesus' grace given to us. That is the center of the gospel message. It is not about sin, but that our God is more loving than any amount of sin that we may have, we may see around us. There is more to Jesus than we can possibly know. The gospel message is about a Jesus who was not indicating with his little dip in the bread who the betrayer was, but it is the fact that the bread points to the body of Christ broken for us, given for all sinners, given for the little sinners and for the big sinners, for those who think they're holy and don't need it, and those who are so afraid to come into church because they think they'll be judged. Christ died for all of them. That is the good news, not only for Jesus, but also for Peter, for all the disciples, and for every one of us. This is why Romans 5 8 says, But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, all of us, Christ died for us. That is the center that we should be aligning ourselves around. Now this is important, right? Not just because uh, it will help us read the Bible well. It's not just for something we do on Sundays. 
But this is important that we understand this because the way that we think about the gospel changes and affects the way we think about ourselves, about Christians, about the church, and the world around us. Because there are two very different ways that you can think about the identity of anything, right? Anytime you're trying to define something, understand something, there are two ways you can go about it. You can think about it in the, you can define any identity by defining its center, or you can define it by its borders, right? What I mean, what I mean is this. When you define something by its center, oh yeah, look at that. When you define something by its center, what you are doing is defining it by its core, its essence, its pure identity, what is central to all of it. For Christians and the church, we need to center our identity, center our beliefs on the grace of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ and all that it represents. This place that we are in right now should be welcoming to anyone who needs grace, anyone who is less than perfect, which, spoiler alert, is everyone out there. It doesn't matter how small or big of a sinner you are, if you need grace, this is the place. And I believe that reunion is. But as a Christian, we need to really adopt that. To be a Christian is simply to recognize that we are people who have received the grace that is given to us through the cross. This applies to Russell, who's at home sick, who's in need of grace, and it applies to me, and it applies to every one of us. On the other hand, defining something by its borders is defining it by what it is and isn't, right? The very limit of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, right? So let's use an example, right? Let's talk about the border between uh, this is a less contentious border, the U.S. and Canada, right? We don't want any of those Canadians getting in. Now, imagine if you were, I don't know if there are any Canadians here, I like you guys. Um, but with that said, imagine if you were right, at the um, very northern tip of Maine, right? Somewhere near the border with Canada. And imagine, you know, that you're in the forest somewhere, because I assume that much about Maine, and there's evergreen trees, and it's like it's cold, and there's like a mist coming through, and there's maple trees, of course. Um, there's maybe even like a, like a moose and a beaver there. Um, but you're in Maine, right? Now, all that feels to me, you know, stereotypically very Canadian. But if you're standing in Maine, if you are even just one foot inside the border, the laws of the U.S. of Maine apply, right? You're in the U.S. And then you take one step over that border, nothing has changed. There's still that moose and the beaver around, and it's still, you know, all that. But now all of a sudden, you're in Canada, right? There are borders there, and we know that at one point you are on one side, and the other point you're on the other side. And in the world, there are many times where we do need to define borders, right? The border of my apartment is my door. That's important because I don't want random people walking into my apartment. And in, in the world around us, right, New York City, you got to define the borders because traffic laws are different. I don't know if you guys know this, but you can't turn right on a red in New York City, but you can in the rest of New York State. So you have to be really aware when you're driving around if you're in New York City or not in New York City. Sometimes borders are very important, but there are times when defining things by its border can get you into a lot of trouble, right? Let's just take a very simple example. I want to talk to you about something that is central and important to all of us, sandwiches, all right? Now, let's say I wanted to define a sandwich, right? I'm trying to, you know, I need to come up with a definition of what a sandwich is. I might say that it's uh, two pieces of bread with some sort of meat product in between that you eat with your hands, right? Well, like, we all kind of get it. That seems like a sandwich. But you can probably imagine some uh, controversy, right, with the sandwich people. What about a club sandwich, right? Oh, that's three pieces of bread. 
But a club sandwich is definitely a sandwich. It's in the name, right? No one has ever approached a club sandwich and said, that's not a sandwich because there's three pieces of bread. That's a sandwich. So we say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll open up that definition all day. At least two pieces of bread. You can have as many pieces of bread, but at least two pieces of bread. Well, now what about open-faced sandwiches, right? I mean, are those sandwiches? I don't know. I, I personally don't think so. I mean, but it's in the name. And then what are two pieces of bread? What about a sub? If you take a piece of bread and you kind of slice it down the middle and it's like loosely connected, is that still two pieces of bread? Is that a sandwich? And what about a hot dog, you know? I mean, is that a sandwich? And then what about that meat product in between? What about a PB&J? Do vegan fillings count? I mean, like Impossible Burgers, is that a sandwich? All of a sudden, right, we all, at the beginning of this, knew what a sandwich was. No one here was confused about what a sandwich was, right? We can go into the other room, we can ask kids, what's a sandwich? And they all, we all know what a sandwich is, and yet, as we begin to define the borders and say, this is what a sandwich is, and this is what a sandwich isn't, now all of a sudden, we're not sure, and we, we just have different opinions about what a sandwich is. Now, I want to be clear here, I'm no sandwich purist, so you know, don't come at me about this, right? I mean, you, can, you can call whatever you want a sandwich. But it gets to the heart of the problem with borders. It forces you to make distinctions about gray areas. It forces you to have to draw a line in the sand, define gray as black and white, and decide if a hot dog is a sandwich. And with sandwiches, it doesn't really matter, right? Honestly, no one's going to leave here and get into an argument, hopefully, about what a sandwich is. Um, but this happens in the church all the time. When our identity is focused not on what is central to us, the cross of Jesus Christ, we begin to have to define borders based on sin and say, you know what, what sin is all of a sudden too much sin? At what point does it become a disruption to our community? At what point do we have to say something to someone about this? Because that's a little bit too far gone. I mean, we begin to have to do this. And now, it's very, we see this in the, the greater church community all around us, right? This is not something that is specific to one church. Right? I'm not calling out a specific church. I'm not calling out reunions. This is something that we, as a people, believers and non-believers, we all see this, that we struggle with. And it's rarely written out, but we all sense it to some extent. We know that there, in, in this culture that we live in, there are uh, batteries that die. There are sins that are too far gone, right? We know that there are sins that are acceptable in our culture, and there are sins that are not acceptable in our culture, right? If you, if you look at church culture, there are certain sins that we're very okay with. Maybe a little bit of sin of pride, maybe a little mild addiction, right? A good Christian really likes their coffee and can't stop talking about coffee, right, Russell? Um, and then, yet we know that there's even some other sins which, you know, kind of push the borders, but we've all kind of accepted it. Maybe a little pride, a little toxic masculinity disguised as biblical manhood, maybe a little bit of uh, just, you know, these kind of things. And these are not even the things that we're that bothered by. If you want to look at the stuff that we are bothered by, just Google hot topics in the church. And what you really get is a list of things that the church is divided on whether it's okay to have in the church or not to have in the church. This is what our church has become. And what happens, sorry guys, give me a second, I need to find where I am. <laughs> oh man, I should have internalized this better. Sorry Russell. And look, is this what the church is meant to be, right? I don't think any of us, once, once again, if you grew up in the church or you didn't grow up in the church, there's a sense of, if I said, 
what is the church? None of us are thinking that defining the church as an organization that has to go out and police morality, a sense all day thinking about what is and isn't right, who's in, who's out, what's okay, what isn't. And yet, in some ways, that's what our church has become, the universal church. And let me be clear here, this is not a struggle that we find only with the modern church. In fact, this struggle of identifying the center and the border of what it means to be the church is one of the first things that the church struggled with. In Acts 15, as the gospel is spreading among the Gentiles, the church has to gather together, gather together for a council. Oftentimes, Acts 15 is called the Jerusalem Council. And what's happening here is that the leaders of the early church, now keep in mind, this is the first generation of the church, right? Peter is here, right? That's, that's as, like, early Christian as you can get. As early as the first generation, the church gets together, and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a part of this thing that we're doing. There's all these Gentiles now who are joining, right? Gentiles, which... Uh, I'm a Gentile, and if you're not ethnically Jew, we're all Gentiles. They're trying to figure out, are we allowed in? And if we're allowed in, what are the rules? Some people are trying to define the borders of salvation and saying, you know what, if you want to be a part of what we're doing, you have to get circumcised. Never mind if you were at birth or not. Um, you have to get circumcised, and you have to follow the, the purity laws, the Hebraic laws. Whereas others argue or they want to center it around the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is what we have here in Acts uh, 15 verse 5. When some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the hearts, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have, have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. This is 2,000 years ago. And are any of us surprised to hear about a church controversy involving morality, body politics, political parties, arguments on how to read scripture, discrimination, testing God, burdening new believers with all these rules? I mean, this might have all been, you know, recently. Our church, and when I say church, I am talking about the church universal. We struggle with this. We talk about grace a lot. We love the word grace, and yet our actions and values, priorities and behaviors say otherwise. The early church struggled to fully accept the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're still struggling today. The disciples, they're sitting at the Last Supper with Jesus. They're with Jesus. He's about to go to the cross, and they don't get it. All they hear with what Jesus says is, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know I'm not perfect, but it can't be me, right? I mean, it's got to be someone else. When Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me, his disciples stare at one another at a loss to know which one he meant. These guys are at a loss. I mean, this group of fishermen, tax collectors, future backstabbers and Jesus deniers, they are at a loss to imagine that one of their group would have to be a recipient of grace. 
And this is what sparks their curiosity and ours to try to figure it out, who it is in our midst that is so sinful. And it plants this seed in the church, in our culture, of borders rather than friendliness. When you think about this matter from the perspective of sinners, this passage is not about Judas. This passage has nothing to do with Judas. This passage is about our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself to sinners, who sat at tables. This is why the Son of Man is glorified. He says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. Christ is glorified even in his betrayal, even in Peter's denial, even in all of our sins. Not because certain people were deemed to be in and out, but because Christ died for those who were in and those who were out. My challenge to us today is very simple, viewers. My challenge for you, and my hope for our, the church at large, is that we refocus ourselves. My hope for the church, the global church, is that we become a people who are truly centered on grace. That instead of going into the world and looking to define borders and scream at one another about moral lines being crossed and getting into arguments which only make us look more judgmental and unhelpful and kind of hateful, we begin, to, we begin to ask instead, how can I be more gracious? How can I extend grace to those who I don't think deserve grace? How can I change this part within me so that way I can be more like Christ? And if we do this, if we begin to ask ourselves this question, if we begin to ask, hey, do I believe in a bordered Christianity or do I believe in a centered Christianity? If we are able to go home and honestly ask ourselves, hey, what borders have I created? What areas have I said, you know what? I can't go there. Those people I cannot love. That political party, that moral ground, they're either too left, too right, whatever. What limits have I unconsciously placed on the grace of God? Who is my Judas? Who is my betrayer? What ideological systems am I just unable to extend grace to? If we are able to do that, if we're able to be honest about these borders and give them up to Christ, place them on the altar and say, God, Jesus, if you were able to die for Judas, if you were able to take bread, dip it in juice, and offer it to your betrayer, God, help me do at least this much. Once you begin to identify it and place it upon the altar, we are able to have the beginnings of the church that I believe, that I want to see in this world, that I believe Christ wants for this world. My hope really is that our generation can be different than 2,000 years that come before us. That sounds like a challenge, honestly. In some ways, uh, preaching this sermon is a little bit fearful because, I'll be honest, there's, there's a part of me that's aware that, you know what, this is the direction that our culture is heading towards more and more division, more and more borders, more and more splits. I myself am part of a denomination which is on the border of splitting over homosexuality and sexuality in general. And it just seems inevitable. And at times it can feel like we're just doing this alone, right? It's 
times it can feel like it would be so much easier just to buy into the division, buy into taking sides and just, you know what, othering the other side. But I don't believe in that kind of church. I don't believe in that kind of Savior. I believe in a, church, in a Savior who died for the worst of us. And so if we are able, one by one, to come together, not based on just agreeing that we're all on the same side, but agreeing that, you know what, at the core of who we are, at the core of what we believe, is this cross where our Savior died for us, even though we were undeserving. We are more like Judas than we are like Jesus. I believe that the church can be different. That we won't need outreach programs, that we won't need uh, gimmicks to try to get people into church. But that if we become truly a people of grace, the world will be curious about what's going on here. If we can come together as a church and center ourselves on Christ, there is hope. And I believe there is hope because at the center of this church is not division, but the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't need to ask who's in and who's out, but how can I draw closer? How can I draw closer to the cross? And how can I be more gracious like Christ? The gospel is centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we center ourselves on Christ, it breaks down borders, it breaks down limits, it breaks down barriers. We center ourselves on Christ, it breaks down borders, it breaks down limits, it breaks down barriers. It drives out fear, right? That's why we say that perfect love drives out fear. We no longer have to be fearful that we're on the wrong side of things. We no longer have to be fearful that we'll get to heaven and God will know us because if we are like his son, we are adopted children. We are part of that kingdom. The gospel message calls us, welcomes us in, and bids us, bids us follow Christ, lay, pick up our cross just like he did. And we can become a community that is not focused on all the buildings around us, but is instead centered on grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us. Lord, we have so often participated in all the nonsense that our culture has surrounded us with. We ourselves have participated in it. We have contributed to it. We've lost sight, really, of what you're about. We've lost sight about, of grace. We've lost sight of just how radically welcoming the cross is. That it welcomes sinners, broken people, the worst of this world, and says that, you know what? The cross is greater. Lord, forgive us for, for that. But Lord, do not just leave us that forgiveness, but transform us. Holy Spirit, work within us to just be honest with ourselves about what borders we have and begin to become a transformed people. Lord, my blessing for all of us here today is that we go out from this place and we don't just take this message as a face value, but we put it into action, Lord. And we begin to become more gracious, more welcoming, more radically humble than, than we could ever have it done by ourselves, Lord. Holy Spirit, work within us. And in a moment as, Lord, we, we break bread and we take
your son named Jesus. I pray, Lord Father, what we remember is not just our sin, but the cross of Jesus Christ that was so much more powerful than any sin that we have. That we are overcome with your goodness, your love, and your grace. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray everything in Jesus' name.